Today's uh, text is Psalm 2. Um, Psalm, the Psalms I've always uh, found to be fascinating for a number of different reasons. I remember the very first Bible that I got from the Gideons when I was in the fourth grade. They came to my public school and they gave all fourth graders these Bibles. And it was just the New Testament and then the Psalms. And so I automatically thought there was something unique about that book uh, just because it was collected with the New Testament, uh, which seemed to be the only part of the Bible that the Gideons thought was worth reading. Uh, and, um, and so, of course, you know, it, this became uh, fairly standard in you know, these uh, more uh, sort of adumbrated uh, you know, versions of, of the Bible, uh, that the Psalms were always included. Uh, and uh, later on, when I became a Christian and uh, moving out of the, the music world and into the church, people automatically dropped me into uh, being a worship pastor, what you would call a worship pastor back then, and the olden days, we called it a minister of music. And um, there was, uh, of course, the Psalms were uh, supposed to automatically be my expertise because they were songs, and I didn't realize that they were songs until after I'd become a Christian and was fascinated by that there was an entire book of songs that Israel sang. Well, the psalms just keep on producing surprise and, uh, and, and a really joyful surprise for me. And I, I remember one of the first times that it dawned on me that the psalms and the act of worship for Israel was an act of political subversion. Now, when we think of political subversion, we think of things like activism or something like that, sit-ins. Or when I was in uh, when I was in college, uh, I was part of a group that, that shouted down Dan Quayle uh, at a at a rally, uh, and I was politically very liberal at the time. And um, I, I might still actually not prefer Dan Quayle, but uh, but uh, but it would be for completely different reasons uh, now and. Um, but, the, uh, but at that time, that, was, that would have been thought to be a politically subversive act. But really, this text that we have casts all of Israel's worship into a political subversive act. And if you think about it, that is really what we're doing, isn't it? That's why Christianity, maybe unlike most religions spans ethnicity and nationality. I mean, we pray for brothers and sisters in India. We pray for brothers and sisters in Afghanistan and Pakistan uh, that, that, that are, are belong to us. And in some very real way, every time we get together, we say to the watching world, the narrative that you have cast for us is below the bar. It is, in fact, beneath the scope of reality. You can only see the very small picture of the world that your country provides or that your political party provides or that your ethnicity provides, your nationality provides. But really, the, the God that we worship is a God who is global. This narrative is a powerful, politically subversive narrative that states that the story that's true, the story that lies behind all the other stories is right here in the scriptures. And so our big idea today is God's people worship their king with hope in a hostile context. God's people worship their king with hope in a hostile context. 
God's people, that's us, worship their king with hope in a hostile context. If you look at the book of Psalms, the very first obvious psalm is Psalm 1. Psalm 1 functions almost like a preface in the same kind of way that the opening verses of John 1 does. John 1, the opening, say, 13 or 14 verses, functions like a preface to the entire book. Psalm 1 does the same thing. Psalm lays out that those people who meditate on the Word of God, and they do this day and night, that they will receive life and righteousness. And this is, of course, a message, if you will, to the king. The, uh, the, uh, this is the individual that in Deuteronomy 17 is supposed to meditate on God's word. Uh, they are supposed to, to, to live this out. And so automatically, all of Israel is granted this kingly responsibility that all that they're about to sing, everything that they're about to know, is got to be the thing that, uh, that captures their mind and their heart. It shapes their imagination. It shapes the way that they think about the world. It is the filter that they look through to see everything else. And then you come to our text. And our text it starts off so unusual. But this is the first opening sort of statement of the theology of the Psalms. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, and this is what they say, this is their counsel, this is their plotting, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords, or that, that Hebrew word can also mean yoke, like you put on an ox, yoke from us. This is our first point, is this is the reaction of the peoples, peoples plural there, the reaction of the peoples. You'll notice that the nations and the peoples and the kings and rulers are the ones that are highlighted here. They are not just simply the, the kings. This would be normal, though. If, in fact, God installed his king on his holy mountain, then it would be normal in the ancient East for the kings around uh, David to want to test his mettle, see what kind of king he actually was. And that could be kind of what this angles into. Um, and, and certainly this would have been a, a point of application that God himself would establish his amnesty and that nations would respond. But the, one writer said the language of Psalm 2 flows out of its banks. In other words, this could be a normal psalm for a normal king, but this doesn't sound like a normal king. This sounds like an unusual king. And the response of the nations is almost hyperbolic, isn't it? In fact, most people would argue with you that are not Christians. They would say, oh, come on, come on. Rage, vain plotting, counseling together to cast off the bonds? No, of course not. That's not me. I'm just not, just not interested in Christianity. I don't think that's true. I think that people are dishonest with themselves oftentimes. If you ask people if they believe in God, people will say yes. They will. I mean, just, I, I mean, I can't remember what year it was. That, it was recently, though, that they, somebody took a poll, and like, something like 90% of America believed in God. But, uh, but think about what that means. I mean, uh, what could that possibly mean? It could mean a number of things. But that's not what these people are reacting to. Look at what they're reacting to. They are taking their counsel against God and his anointed, his Messiah, and they're saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. What they're responding to 
is being ruled by God. I would want to argue that I feel like that this is a normal human response. Normal human response to God is, I really like you as long as I can define you. But the moment that you throw a yoke on me and now I am obligated to you, that my morality is obligated to you, that my sense of wisdom is obligated to you, that the way I look at the world, the way I, the way I look at myself is obligated to you, now we're talking about something completely and totally different. Now we're talking about someone who probably has deep hostilities towards God. A perception of God who says, I am holy, so you will be holy. I am the judge of all the earth, and I will do right. You will one day stand before me, and I will adjudicate whether or not you are righteous based on my own righteousness. You will be judged. I mean, most of us, most of us even who are Christians get squirmy about a language like that. But that's biblical language. That's just flat out true. When Paul calls himself a slave for Christ, he's talking about something like this. Paul gladly throws his arms up and says, throw the yoke on me. I'm going to be a slave. Whether people like it or not, they're slaves to something or someone. And Paul says, I'm more than happy to be a slave to Christ. Now, the nation's rage and the people's plot in vain because they refuse to be ruled by God. They refuse to be ruled by God. And the, the, the power of this reaction is that they, in fact, believe that they can plot the kings of the earth. This is a global response. The rulers of the earth, the nations, all their peoples, counsel together to cast off God's rule. Now, this would have been, you know, common thought in the ancient world. What's really intriguing is that Israel has this global, it feels like it's got this global power. But if you look at Israel and the history of Israel, particularly in the biblical times, Israel at best is like a mini empire. It's like a mini micro empire. It's not like, I mean, it's not like, it's not like when I was growing up and my mom and dad read the Bible to me, I thought, literally I thought because of the way the Bible is written, Israel must be the only people on the planet. And they must just be massive, like United States massive. Or, or, you know, um, uh, old school Rome or Greece or Persia or Babylon. Massive, but they're not. They're like little. They're, they're really tiny. If you look at a map, I remember the first time I saw Israel on a map, I thought that when the, my teacher pointed at Israel that they meant that entire swath of land. That, you know, starts up there near Turkey, runs all the way down. And they went, no, 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 it's, it's this part. And they colored it. And I was like, that's not, I guess the size of Rhode Island. What have I been taught? I mean, it was just incredible. But yet here it says, the, the king of Israel engenders global reaction. Global reaction. The kings of the earth and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. This is a remarkable king. 
really remarkable king. The reaction of the nations demonstrate that. But the response of God also demonstrates that. That's our next point. The response of God. Look at God. He who sits in the heavens, in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. And he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. That is a remarkable reaction. When I was growing up, uh, again, I was raised to believe what really is, and now I've come to, to realize is kind of more like mainline Protestant liberalism in my deeply fundamentalist church that I, that I grew up in. But there was a, a universal fatherhood type perspective of God, that God loved every human being that's ever been on earth the exact same way. You can only imagine that when I started reading for the Bible for myself, my mass confusion at what I was taught growing up, uh, you know, by, by well-intended Sunday school teachers. Uh, I can still remember their names, you know, things like Ms. McBrayer, Ms. Vesey, Vernell Vesey. If you want a southern name, there's a southern name, Vernell. I guarantee you that you don't have a kid named Vernell, uh, and uh, you would never think about naming a kid Vernell more likely. And so, but, but I remember they, they said, you know, they, they were patiently walked us through our Sunday school lessons, but it was always kind of the same, is that God was, you know, just fascinated by me, and, and he was, you know, if I had been the only kid on the planet, he would have, he would have done everything he could because he, he, he was so nuts about me. And I wasn't the kid that you needed to tell that to twice. I had more self-esteem than most, you know, kids, most families. And, and so when you told me that, I was like, it just reiterated my own thoughts about myself. So to open up the text and see that God responds to the reaction of the nations by laughing at them, mocking them, holding them in derision. And this isn't just simply normal mocking. Like in my family, um, both of the family I grew up in and in my family that, uh, that, that I'm a husband and father to, uh, sarcasm is just the air we breathe. And if you can't do sarcasm... You are red meat for the rest of us because we won't exactly, you know, contextualize you. (laughs) We'll just just kick you back and forth. And and say sarcasm is just really normal. So mockery, I grew up, mockery was like a really common fun thing that my dad would do with my brother and I. He would make us. Uh, my dad had, uh, when, I, when he was younger, he, he was a boxer, and, and so he had all these calisthenics that were the bar, <laughs> the bar of manhood for his 10- and 7-year-old. I mean, we're not even I mean, we're not remotely men. You know? So he'd make us do you know, these push-ups and flip up into the wall and do headstand to handstand push-ups and do pull-ups. And if we couldn't do them, he would make up girl names for us. My name was Jeff, and so if I couldn't do X number of push-ups, he would refer to me as Jennifer. And, and my brother's name was Mark, and so he was Marjorie. And, and so, and then we would start la- we couldn't, then we couldn't because we were laughing so hard at my dad making fun of us uh, that, that we, uh, that we just collapse. Yeah, and which is fine on a normal push-up. A headstand, a handstand push-up can be you know, perilous. Uh, but, uh, but my dad still enjoyed it. We enjoyed it. This isn't that type of mockery. This is full-on, sarcastic, derisive mockery because of the absurdity that the nations and the rulers perceive themselves to be in the position to thwart 
the will of God. God portrays himself here as a completely and absolutely sovereign king. This is what Israel would sing. In the face of all the nations around them, in the face of Babylon and Persia and Moab and Damascus and Syria rather, and in Assyria and Ammon, in Egypt, in Edom, they would sing, why would you plot? Why would you dare? Our God is completely and utterly sovereign over who you are. It's a remarkable statement of independence. And God has set his king on Zion. Zion is the theological nickname for Jerusalem. That's the best. I always tell students that. It's the best way to think about it. It was originally kind of reference to um, the Jebusites, a group of people that we don't know a ton about, uh, owned Jerusalem before David took it away from them. And the main hill there was what Zion typically referred to, just topographically. But if you read, the, if you read you know, through the prophets and the Psalms in particular, you'll realize that whenever they say Zion, there's something deeply theological about it. It's tied to, uh, for example, the, uh, you know, the temple. So in Amos chapter 1, right, the Lord roars from Zion. It's not just from some obscure hill. From the temple. And so there's some theological kind of depth to Zion that, Jeru- that, that kind of transcends Jerusalem. And so Zion is this theological nickname for Jerusalem that really emphasizes the presence of God amidst Jerusalem. And this is where God has set his king. He has set his king not in some you know, typical palace, but he has set his king, established his king in his own temple. The presence of the king in some very real way is the presence of God. Like I said a while ago, this psalm kind of works its way out of its banks and drifts out of the banks in, uh, you know, in the way it talks about this king. The response of God yields to the rule of the king. Listen to the rule of the king in verses 7 through 9. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possessions. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, you'll notice that the the person, if you will, of of, of this uh, psalm changes in verse 7. From the beginning... There's a, like a third person tenor to it until you get to verse 7. And then all of a sudden it sounds like someone has just handed the mic, right? Hands the mic to the king. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son today. I've begotten you. That's David. That's 2 Samuel 7. That's the, that is the covenant with David. This is talking about whatever this is. This is talking about a king who engenders global response. This is talking about a king whose presence among his people is God's presence among his people. And it's rooted to David. New Testament writers, of course, pick this up. Romans chapter 1 verse 4 where, where Paul, Paul somehow or another just needs to say, I'm an apostle to the gospel of God concerning his son Jesus, who was the son of David according to the flesh. Or Matthew's opening genealogy that establishes the identity of Jesus as a son of David. Jesus Christ, son of Abraham, son of David. Uh, and goes on and on and on. Or, or the Acts chapter 4 text that our sister read. 
Acts chapter 13 also establishes this very psalm, this very idea. Or Hebrews chapter 1, who utilizes this phrase also to establish the deity of Jesus. This is a remarkable text. The rule of the Son is that the nations are his heritage. The earth is his possession. And he will assault them and dash them to pieces. That's not so much that he's meant to attack us or attack people, but to attack the military and the, the every, every argument, every idea set against him. The, the rebels that would charge him are reduced to things like pottery. I, uh, I had never uh, swung a bat or a stick or whatever you call it at a pinata until I moved to Southern California. Might shock you, but in Alabama, we don't have pinatas. We, we, we throw things at each other, but it's not anything, it's not candy. It's, so it's, uh, it was fascinating for me to see it, and uh, I can't remember even whose kid it was, the birthday, but I, was, I, I just mentioned, this is the first time I've ever been to a party that had a pinata. I've seen I saw it on Sesame Street when I was a kid. I had no idea what I was looking at. I just, all I knew, there was a birthday party, there was this animal hanging from the, the tree, and people were beating it, and I was like, I don't know about this culture at all. <laughs> and, uh, but then it split open and candy fell out and it automatically was like, oh, I love these group of people. <laughs> and so it's, it's brilliant. Why have we not thought of this? And, uh, but, but I remember they let, me, they let me hit it. And I thought, this is probably the only time I'm going to get to do this. I went through years and years of childhood birthdays and never had a pinata. And so I, I dropped back and I drilled that thing uh, with like Mike Trout. And... Um, Split it wide open and, I th- and, um, and irritated the kid that, whose birthday it was. <laughs> I, mean, I think he wanted to do that. And, and um, she, it was a she. Now I remember whose birthday it was. And, and, um, but it was about, I just remember thinking uh, that was easy. That was so easy. I kind of thought that it was going to be hard because in videos I'd seen people hitting it and hitting it and hitting it and hitting it and hitting, it and hitting it and nothing. And I, just, and I just decided I was going to take this thing's head off and, uh, and pretty much did. Um, that's, that's what this is saying that the king will reduce his enemies to. His enemies are not going to be tantamount to being actual enemies. They're going to be like pottery. And he's going to be swinging a rod of iron. Uh, That's not even a contest. That's not a contest. You can pick out the smallest kid here. You have a church loaded with the most adorable kids I've ever seen in my life. And, and, um, and you can take any one of those kids, and if they can pick up a rod of iron, I promise you they can clean house in the pottery barn. Right? They, they can absolutely uh, do all kinds of damage. It doesn't take a lot of strength. And this is a king. This is a king who can wear a sword. This is a king who can mount a horse. This is a king who can lead an army. He has a rod of iron and all of his enemies are reduced to pottery. The, uh, the point is that the king here, who, res- who, who ignites global reaction, whose presence among his people is the presence of God, has no real enemies. He is so sovereign that he will, in fact, reign and rule. 
And that brings us to the last part, the, the requirements. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Now, the, the advice is to the kings. The advice, interestingly enough, Israel's worship now turns itself and they advise the people outside of them. O kings and rulers, and you can couple in, in with that the nations and the peoples that are mentioned in verse 1. Be wise. Be warned. Serve God with fear and rejoice with trembling. The concept of fear of God is a, a really interesting idea. Uh, the fear of God is one of those ideas in the Bible that for whatever bizarre reason, from the earliest days of interpretation, we've sought to tame the idea. And so most of the time when you talk to people about fear of God, they say something like respect or reverence or something like that. As far as I can tell, all of the uses of the Hebrew word for that word fear, there's really only one text that ever actually talks about that word as if it's reverence. All of the other texts talk about that word as if it is a, and this is my definition for it, a visceral confidence in God. It's a visceral confidence in God. It is the way the Old Testament, I think, talks about faith. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in your way. This is, this is advice to the nations who would be enemies of the son. Just don't do that. Don't be enemies of the son. Kiss the son. He is no one to trifle with. Serve him with fear, with great confidence in his goodness. Most of the time, for example, in the book of Deuteronomy, where God is uh, telling people to fear him, he's telling these other people to fear him, the motivation is the goodness of God. So if you go back and you look at just the word fear throughout the book of Deuteronomy, you'll see that it's kind of parsed into different ideas. Like if you're fearing the other kings or the other gods of the nations, it's one thing, or if you're doing, or, or if fear is used to, to deter someone from committing a crime, that's one thing. But if God is the object, most often, the motivation for fearing the Lord is his goodness. Deuteronomy 14 says that in, uh, you know, the, the annual tithe feast, is when Israel comes and they bring their, their uh, grain and their wine and their oil and they, they consume all of that before God. And this is what the text says, in order to learn the fear of God. What, what about eating grain or drinking wine teaches you the fear of God if you're supposed to be frightened of him? Yet the fear of God is a visceral confidence in his goodness. This is what God's provided you. Now eat and drink and remind yourself of God's goodness. And this is, this, this is a, it's supposed to have this visceral effect. And here, Israel points outside of itself and says, serve the Lord with fear. It's an evangelistic kind of psalm in some very real way. In fact, the psalm itself can be broken down into the gospel. With the opening... The opening line being the response of people to God and then God's response to people and then the warning or the requirements of the, uh, the, the gospel itself. I mean, you'd, have to, you'd have to work with it. I wouldn't use this. Uh, God mocks me? Uh, it's not gonna, it's not, that conversation probably not going to go well, but you get what I'm saying. 
Kiss the son lest he be angry, and you perish in the way. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. So the son is the king that God has installed in the, in the midst of his people. He is the one for whom all of the nations rage. He is the one that will eventually rule the world itself. And this shapes the worship of Israel. If this is the only psalm we had, it would be really quite triumphalistic and a little bit confusing given Israel's history. But it's not the only psalm that we have. Really, the beginning of, uh, of, of the psalms here is, is really quite remarkable. These first psalms emphasize this king. Here is a king whom God is establishing who will rule over all the world. And the world is warned, don't fight him. He is not to be trifled with, but he is very good. He's far more dangerous than you could ever imagine. And he's far better than you could ever dream. Kiss the sun, lest he be angry. And then, from that point forward, beginning with Psalm 3 and going to end Psalm 41, they bracket out a really big section of lament psalms. It might be interesting to you, just like it was terribly interesting to me, to find out that the vast majority of Israel's worship literature are laments. They're not these triumphalistic songs. I, I found that fascinating, and so back in 2018... I, um, I was invited to read this paper at an academic conference, and so I thought that I would, you know, do something rather more practical than, you know, I mean, as an academic, you know, we, we embrace, uh, I embrace my egg-headedness. I, 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 like, I like the esoteric and the eccentric and things like that, and, and so I get that. But, but I also was a, you know, in the local church ministry for over 30 years, and, and so I, I, feel a, I feel a real pull towards practicality oftentimes as well. And so I downloaded off of Billboard magazine the top 125 worship songs of 2018. You can only imagine you know, what I found. Uh, I mean, it was, I found some really good stuff. And I found some really strange stuff. Stuff that I'm still not completely sure what it meant. But you know what I didn't find? Not once. A single lament. Not a single lament. Psalms open up by saying, our God will establish his king in the, in the world. He will rule the world. He will rule all of the world. The nations, whether they want to or not, will bow the knee. The kings, whether they want to or not, will succumb to his rule, either in peace or because of his rod of iron, but they will succumb. And then, from that point forward, there's this huge bracket of laments. One writer said the positions of these psalms indicates that no matter how the king is derided by the nations, no matter how the king is pursued by his enemies, that God will provide victory for the king. The second book of the psalm opens up in Psalm 43, goes to 72, and also includes a number of laments, ending there with Psalm 72, which promises the Davidic king will reign throughout the entire earth. And so you have Psalm 2 opening up a series of laments, a series of laments opening up with the book, uh, second book of Psalms, ending with Psalm 72 that celebrates what Psalm 2 said was going to be true. This is incredible to me because this is the pattern. Third book of the Psalms indicates just disaster for the nation, particularly opening up with Psalm 73, which says, with the psalm saying, the psalmist saying, 
I am looking around. I'm, I've heard all the, the king is coming stuff. I'm looking around, and it seems like wicked people advance. Wicked people are never ill. Wicked people are always uh, strong and rich and powerful, and I am not. I'm not. And then the psalmist about halfway through says, if I had opened my mouth and said what I'm thinking, I would have betrayed God's people, but I felt this way until I went into the sanctuary of God, the very place where God says he's establishing his king. And the psalmist says, when I went into the sanctuary of God and I experienced the presence of God, I now knew their end. And so the the worship of Israel clings to what is real over against that which is apparent. Clings to what is real over against that which is apparent. um, I'll try to be careful with this illustration. The number of kids in here, I think I'll just skip this illustration, actually. Uh, I remember having, uh, my wife and I uh, had to home, we we were asked to homeschool these two young girls who um, had just had this horrible, horrible upbringing. They had been rescued from their dad. And uh, their their own own educational advancement, even like they were 9 and 11 years old, they couldn't read. They couldn't, uh, yeah. They couldn't write. Uh, it was it was abysmal, and the public system just wasn't ready for kids like this. And they, uh, you know, they, they've got to keep everybody moving. And so they were moving these kids along. The the mom and dad were both public school teachers and were frustrated with how the system was responding to them. And so they asked my wife. My wife is a master homeschooler. Uh, it's remarkable. I, my, I remember my kids used to think their life was the most miserable life on the planet because they'd bump into other homeschoolers. They'd say, no, I sleep till like 10 o'clock in the morning. And my kids were like, what? Uh, and then because at my house, you were up at 6.30, and you were uh, in, sitting in the living room at 7 for the first lesson. First lesson was a, a catechism. And then after that, it was boom, 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 boom. And Sergeant Mom was right there to make sure everything was clipping along. And, and, um, and most of the time, for about half of, our, half of the homeschooling uh, entourage, which was my daughters, Karis included, there was really no need for supervision. For my son, however, there was desperate need for supervision. And, and so there was this constantly moving, 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 moving. And they were brilliantly educated by the time uh, that they all decided to, to move into uh, you know, public and private uh, you know, schools by their ninth grade year. Uh, but these, uh, these two kids were super behind. And so are you, I'll be fast, I was fascinated by around December, one kid said, hey, do you know how Santa gets into houses that don't have chimneys? Now, I'm in, the, I'm in the process of my morning routine. Anybody who knows me knows I kind of live and die by routines. And so I'm in the process. Of, and when my routine is interrupted, I can be rude. And, and, um, and so she's interrupting my routine. But it's this cute little girl. Well, I, what am I going to say? And so I was like, um, no, I, I don't have any idea how Santa could get into a house that's got, doesn't have a chimney. She launches into like a master's degree level discussion on domestic architecture that I was not prepared for. And I found myself 
pulling up a chair and sitting and listening to her. She almost had me. I was like, you know, I think you're right. <laughs> yeah, and some of my god, man, let me get another cup. This is good. I mean, I mean, she was remarkable. This kid had given every conceivable thought to this. There is a distinction, though, right, in that, in that scenario between what's apparent and what's real. She didn't get that. Even at 11, she didn't get it. It was all very, in other words, the apparent and the real feel like the same thing when they're happening to you. When was the last time something terrible happened to you and you thought, where, I wonder if there is a God. I wonder, I wonder, and if there is a God, I mean, does he, is he really as good as Jason says he is? Or do I judge God on this moment, this moment? This moment's horrible, therefore God must be horrible. People do that all the time. But the Psalms take that into account. The worship of Israel celebrates spitefully, stubbornly, that though the apparent is oft so strong, God is still the ruler yet. He's still good. And as book three yields to book four, beginning in Psalm chapter 90, the psalm, even addressing the absence of a divinity king, gets to Psalm 101 and stresses the ideal requirements of a king. In other words, regardless of how the world looks, this is, in fact, the way the world is. God will set his king on Zion, his holy hill. He will reign sovereignly. So in the throes of pain and suffering, you can sing your deepest sorrows. Because not only does God wage the iron rod against his enemies, but he carries his people tenderly. That last line of our psalm, blessed are all who take refuge in him. It's remarkable. Really remarkable. In the last five psalms in the book. If you've ever wondered, I, I thought that, I remember I, when I was growing up, I thought that all the psalms were like the last five. And those are the ones I read because they were short. And I didn't really want to be bothered by you know, a whole bunch of poetry. Poetry wasn't my thing when I was a, when I was a kid. And so, I, and so I'm reading these last five, and I'm like, oh, this is, this is, uh, this is what all the whole book is, but it's not. But that last five, last five psalms celebrate, celebrate that one day that this king will come and everything that has breath will praise God. It's the same kind of idea that you get in Philippians chapter 2, right? That, that, that out there in that day that, that everyone will bow the knee to the risen Christ. The one for whom God has given uh, the name that is above all names, that every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will proclaim that Jesus Christ is Lord. That's what the Psalms is doing. The Psalms are saying that is exactly what will happen over the future. Our worship, we want to understand the way that we worship as not just simply singing songs about Jesus. I think it's a great way to think about worship. But I think that's more of a, a really good way to think about worship if you're a kid. 
Sing songs about Jesus. Because the kid already, I mean, this is part of what it is to be childlike in the faith. The kid does not give credence to other political claims. Have you ever thought about your kids that way? Your kids do not give credence to other political claims. Is Jesus king? Your kid immediately, yes. Yes, Jesus is king. Now, you can say, oh, little tiger, that's just because you haven't grown. No, 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 no. Jesus will look at you and go, that's because he hasn't grown up yet? Are you serious? You think, that, you think he's saying that because he's naive? Or is he saying that because he really does believe it's true? He's saying that or she's saying that because they believe it's true. Worship is politically subversive. It says to all the other cultural claims, you're not true. Think about the Apostles' Creed. We believe in God, the Father, Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. Or think about the act that you're about to do, the Lord's table, where you come to the table and you celebrate. The one and only mediator between God and man. You are saying to all of the narratives, you are not right. This is not right. You're saying to all of the gods who seek to own you, you may not own me. I'm already a servant to the king. And the king to whom you will bow. It's a really remarkable idea. I think that practically this means, be careful about what you sing. Think carefully about how your service is laid out. Luckily for you, you've got Jason. Jason's very intentional about all of that. Not everybody is. But think of it as more than simply coming to church, being able to sing songs that emotionally affect you. Ask God to grant you the grace to see that every time you get here, you are being granted a whole nother narrative that the world will never give you. In fact, a, a, a family member of mine who is not a Christian, I, I, I've told them before, I said, if, if you will just go to church, I said, not because you're a Christian and not because you even feel like you fit in, but go to church in order to hear another narrative. The narrative that you live by is the one that you get all the time. I mean, it pours through every song, every television, all the news scripts, all of it. All of it is the kings and the nations and the peoples plotting in vain. All of it is their narrative. But when you're among the believers and you sing something like, there is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's vein, and sinners plunged beneath the flood and lose all their guilty stains. You are in a different narrative. And you hear something, uh, you know, like, my sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole's been nailed to the cross. I bear it no more. Praise the Lord my soul. This is a different narrative. This is a different king. This is a different story. This is saying, that the life you're living and the world that you think is real is only apparent. The real world is ruled by the great king, the great king who is more terrible than you could possibly imagine, but who is better than you have ever dreamed. And he has come to wage war on the enemies of his people and has done so and has defeated death and sin in his death and his resurrection. 
It is a different narrative altogether. Take your worship seriously. Take it seriously. Don't ever, in the, in, in the future, don't, don't ever you know, compromise that to, to pull more people in. Or to, or to do these, these are really tempting things. I was a senior pastor, and there's a guy who was in charge of music for about you know, 15 or years or so, and, and a senior pastor for close to 20. I, I felt the pull to that big time. And I'm not suggesting any particular style or anything like that's problematic. I don't, you'd be probably shocked at what I'm willing to, to, to embrace as, as far as music style goes. I'm talking about what you sing. You guys sing great songs, phenomenal songs. I, I looked at, I, I automatically got excited. I glanced at the last song that we're singing today. And I, this is one of my favorite hymns ever. Oh, worship the King, oh, glorious above, and gratefully sing His wondrous love. I mean, it's an amazing song. Our shield, our defender, our ancient of days, pavilioned in splendor and girded with praise. This cannot be a better set of lyrics. Take everything that you do here seriously. And connect all the stuff that you sing to what the psalmist connected to. The response of people and the need for a king. For those of you who are not Christians, and for those of us who are, I would ask, where is your, where's your heart when it comes to the king? I, mean, I, I have to admit that there are times when I'm reading through the Bible and the, the demands that God makes, they run against all that I was raised with because I was really, I'm an American. I don't do kings. I, I, was, I was trained up from the beginning not to do kings, not, not to be told what I have to be. I can be whatever I want to be, except for a long list of things that I have no shot at ever being. Nobody ever gave me that list, but I figured it out on my own. I was never going to be the center for the Harlem Globetrotters, and I wanted to be. I was never going to be one of the pips with Gladys Knight, and I really wanted to be. My dad responded that the same problem existed between both of those ambitions. Both the, all those guys are taller than you, Jeff. And so I was, oh, man, I can't, I'm not tall enough to be a pip. And, and so uh, the, the, uh, the idea, though, was there was this ton of stuff I was never going to be, ever going to be. I graduated at 130 pounds. I was never going to be a linebacker. Tons of stuff. But I was told, you can be whatever you want. That's, that's a dangerous thing to tell a kid. Because they, it's, it's, it's both at the same time helpful to, to, for them to abandon all of the, the, the negative things that they have. But, but it's also problematic because you want them to serve a king. Where is, is Jesus the king of your life? Or do you work to throw him off? Don't do that. Kiss the son. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Take refuge in him. Own the fact that you are a rebel and come to Jesus. And if you're like me, own the fact that you're a rebel as you're taking this meal and remind yourself this is the goodness of God. Not my present situation, but this is the goodness of God. I can lament in pain knowing that Christ has redeemed me. And that I will see him one day. Let your worship 
imbibe these truths. God's people worship their king with hope, even in a hostile context. Father, in the name of Christ, we pray that you would be glorified in this uh, next act of worship. In your name, amen.